It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, either prayer will lead you from sin or sin will lead you from prayer. In other words, if you are praying a lot, in all likelihood, you're sinning a little. And if you are sinning a lot, in all likelihood, you've been praying little. The truth of that statement is no better personified than in our passage this morning. Today we continue our 12-part study of the Minor Prophets, and this morning we come to the most notorious of those Minor Prophets, and yes, his is a whale of a story. I invite you to take your Bible and draw your sword and turn to Jonah chapter 2. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Jonah chapter 2 I'm going to begin at verse 1. I'm going to end at verse 10. Jonah chapter 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. The currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. For salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah Onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. From Jonah's prayer, there are four lessons that you and I learn about prayer. First, pray in spite of guilty distress. Pray in spite of guilty distress. Jonah was the prophet of God who lived during the 8th century B.C., the days of the divided kingdom with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. In chapter 1, we learn in our story that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go and preach against the city of Nineveh, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now you expect For the prophet of God to be obedient to the word of God. But nothing could be further from the truth. To say that Jonah hated the people living in Nineveh is an understatement. Jonah lived in the northernmost corner of Israel. It was the land that had originally been given to Zebulun, the son of Israel. The neighbors right to the east of Jonah... That was the nation of Assyria. And frequently, the Assyrian army would cross the border, come into Israel, flex their muscles, and give the Israelites a proverbial black eye. 
the Assyrians were known for their brutal antics. They would cross the border. They would uh, destroy, pillage, and plunder anything that was in their way. Undoubtedly, Jonah had seen firsthand the war machine of the Assyrians. He heard their chariots rumble through his streets. He watched as they would invade village upon village and they would take whatever they wanted from the Israelites. Jonah saw as they kidnapped family and friends. He watched as they took away women and children and any Israelite man who stood in their way, the Assyrians would kill right there on the spot. Now ultimately, the Assyrians would invade the northern kingdom of Israel and take over the entire nation of Israel in 722 B.C. But Jonah predates that inevitable attack. But for the decades that preceded 722, the Assyrians would come in occasionally from time to time and they would take whatever they wanted. And, and what was left in the heart of Jonah was a, was a, was a heart that was filled with hatred toward the Assyrians. He had a justified prejudice against those individuals. They took stuff that belonged to him and to his family and to his friends. He knew people that had been hurt and harmed by the Assyrians. And oh, by the way, did I tell you? The leading city of Assyria was Nineveh. God had the audacity to call the prophet named Jonah direct him to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the gospel. God wanted Jonah to go to Jonah's nemesis and tell them the good news of salvation. The last thing Jonah wanted to do was to tell them about God's salvation. How would you respond if God called you to go to that individual that has hurt you and harmed you. Go to that people that you have been trained to hate. Go to that group of individuals that you just despise because you just don't like them very much. What if God called you to go to your enemy and proclaim the good news of the gospel unto them? What would you do? I'll tell you what Jonah did. Jonah would rather perish than preach the gospel to the Ninevites. So he resigned his post. He turned in his ordination papers. He went south to the city of Joppa. He boarded a boat, set sail for Tarshish. Tarshish was a thousand miles in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah actually thought he could outrun the righteous one. He thought he could outmaneuver the Messiah. He thought he could outsmart the omniscient one. Jonah actually thought he could outpace and outrun God Almighty. God had told him to go to his enemy. And Jonah said, nope, I ain't going. He resigned his post. He went and ran in the opposite direction. When I read the details of that story, I am stunned. The reason I'm stunned is I am shocked that he successfully made it to Joppa. That he found the precise boat he was looking for. He had the exact amount of money needed to purchase a ticket to board that boat. 
And when he went onto that ship, he went down below deck and he fell fast asleep on the very first night and never even missed one wink of sleep in spite of all of his disobedience. When I read all of that, it stuns me. But friends, let me tell you, just because things might be going your way, that does not necessarily mean you're going God's way. Just because everything's working out in your life, just because things are going well for you, that does not necessarily mean that you're going the way of God. Once again, it was C.H. Spurgeon who said that God never permits his children to sin successfully. He'll permit you to sin, but we just don't get away with it. He does not allow us to sin successfully. In this story, God raised up a storm. The storm frightened the seasoned sailors on that ship. They resorted to very crude pagan form of religion of casting lots to see who was most responsible for this terrible storm because it was one of the worst storms these sailors had ever experienced and the lots fell on that stowaway named Jonah they went below deck woke him from his slumber interrogated him with 20 questions and reluctantly threw him overboard the reason I say reluctantly is because it wasn't their idea to throw Jonah overboard. That was Jonah's idea. Jonah said, if you throw me overboard, this storm will stop. Because God is the one behind this storm. God is just trying to get my attention. If you throw me overboard, I'll die in the deep blue sea and, and the storm will stop. They reluctantly threw him overboard. Stop and think about what Jonah is saying. He would rather perish than preach. He would rather die in the sea than repent of his sin. Just throw me overboard and the storm will stop. His patriotism was greater than his passion for obedience to God. His racism was stronger than his own righteousness. This is what Jonah is thinking. If I go to the city of Nineveh, and if I preach the gospel, then I know that my God, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, he will save some of those who receive him, and he'll relent from sending calamity upon Nineveh. But if I don't go, and if I don't preach, then they won't hear. And if they don't hear because I don't go and I don't preach, then they'll die in their sin and they'll go straight to hell. And the place that Jonah wanted all of them to go, he wanted all of them just to go to hell because they were not worth the soil they were standing upon. So Jonah said, it's a small price to pay for my own life. I will give up my own life to ensure that those people of Nineveh, they just go straight to hell. Because I hate them that much. Jonah was thinking to himself, I'll just die. Because I don't want to be obedient to God. Because I just know how good God is. And if they respond in faith, God will save them. And so, Jonah 
was thrown into the sea. God provided a great fish that swallowed Jonah. I used to think that the fish was a sign and symbol of punishment, but it's really not. That great fish is a sign and symbol of deliverance. God will use anything at his disposal, which is everything, to get you where he wants you to go. Remember, you belong to him. You're his property. He is your master. He tells you what to do. You don't tell him what to do. He commanded a great fish and it swallowed Jonah. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed. I don't know how much time elapsed from when Jonah was thrown overboard and he sank down deep into the sea to the point that he was at the root of the mountains and the whole earth seemed to bar him in. I don't know how much time elapsed between going down, flipping and floundering and flopping all the way down to the depths of the sea for the great fish to come and swallow him. But by the time the fish comes and swallows him, I'm sure that Jonah has gone in and out of consciousness several times. When he's in the belly of the fish, he begins to contemplate everything that's happened. And then he begins to pray from inside the belly of the fish. Jonah prayed. And the first thing Jonah says is, in my distress, I called, and you answered me. I called, and God, he listened to me. Jonah says, in my distress, Jonah was guilty. He knew he was guilty. It wasn't like he inadvertently fell off the side of the ship. It's not like he was on his way to do something good for God, like hold a crusade or go on a mission trip or or win a lot of people for Christ. No, he was going in the opposite direction. He was trying to outrun God. He was trying to outmaneuver the Messiah. He was trying to outpace the Lord. He was guilty of disobedience. He knew it. God knew it. Probably the fish knew it. Everybody knew it. And in his guilty distress, he cried out to the Lord. Friends, sometimes... The devil tries to slither into your life and tell you, you don't even need to waste your time in prayer. Because what you've done, God won't even listen to you. Because of where you've been, because of what you've done, God will not even listen to you. You've got to get your life cleaned up and straightened out before you go to him in prayer. You can't just go to him in prayer in your guilt because God won't listen. Friend, when Satan says those things to you, you need to throat punch that punk from hell, right? I mean, you need to tell him and put him in his place because the word of God says right here in Jonah chapter 2 that in Jonah's guilty distress, he called out to the Lord and he answered. He called out to the Lord, and Jonah says, you listened to my cry. The devil tries to tell you, don't don't, don't pray. It'll do no good because God won't listen. Oh, but friend, you can just look at Jonah and say, yeah, God will listen in the midst of guilt, in the midst of disobedience. And when you pray, I want you to acknowledge and realize that Jonah went from the third person to the second person. He started out talking about how I called and he answered. The next line says, I called and you listened to my cry. 
when you cry out to him in prayer, it's not enough to pray about God. You pray directly to God. Your disobedience has not disqualified you as a son or daughter of the king. Your defiant disobedience of the Lord does not cancel or annul your adoption papers. You are still a child of God, bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do to lose that salvation that God has given unto you. So this morning, friend, if you are running from God, can I just encourage you to stop. Just stop running from God and pray. Stop running, start praying. You say, but pastor, I'm guilty. I know you're guilty. You know you're guilty. God knows you're guilty. Okay, all of us are on the same page. You're guilty. But in your guilty distress, cry out to the Lord. Just stop trying to outrun the righteous one. Stop trying to live a life of defiant disobedience and get out from beyond his grasp. Just stop running and pray. Second, we pray in spite of gruesome circumstances. Beginning in verse 3, he says, um, you hurled me into the deep. Things got bad to worse. You hurled me into the deep. The current swirled around me. The waves and breakers swept over me. Seaweed wrapped around my head. I sank down, down to the very root of the mountain. The earth barred me in. I felt the pressure of the world on my shoulders. I felt barred in forever. Yet you lifted me up out of that pit, O oh Lord my God. The life of Jonah is a downward spiral. Some of you can relate to that. You know life getting out of control, just spinning downward, downward, downward. He went down to Joppa. He went down below deck. He went down into the sea. He sank down all the way to the root of the mountains of the sea. There was just a spiraling downward of the life of Jonah. And in the midst of all of that, God was still in control. And Jonah cried out to the Lord in spite of guilty distress and in spite of the gruesome circumstances. And I want you to notice that he said, you hurled me into the deep. Now wait a hot minute. I thought the pagan sailors hurled him into the deep. Which one is it? God or the sailors? And the answer is yes, it's both. Because in this moment, Jonah's beginning to see the hand of God in the hand of those sailors. That God was behind it all. God was orchestrating. God was working even, even, through, even through those pagan sailors to capture and get the attention of Jonah. You know God can use anything to get you back on track. Have you ever uh, experienced, have you ever had anything happen in your life? Have you ever noticed that there are times... God's hand can masquerade as the hand of a sailor. That God can use something that seems to be very worldly. God can use something that seems to be pretty ungodly. God can use something that, that seems to be so unlike God, but he can use it to capture your attention and get you back on the right path of where he wants you to go. 
my preaching professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary was a man by the name of Haddon Robinson. Gordon-Conwell was located outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and Dr. Robinson was a phenomenal preacher. He was very gifted at preaching, and he was very gifted at teaching people how to preach. Robinson was born and raised in New York City. To be more specific, he was born and raised in Harlem. To be even more precise, it was Mousetown. In those days, it was said that Harlem was some of the toughest streets to raise children. And of those streets, Mousetown was the worst place on the planet to raise children. Robinson would say that in order to survive those streets, you had to be part of a gang. And he said, so as a boy, I was part of a gang. He said, I remember my first gang fight. It was a turf war between us and the other gang. He said, I went back to the apartment, and we didn't own a gun. We were too poor. I didn't have a blade. Only thing I could find was an ice pick. So I put the ice pick in my jacket, and I went to the spot where the rumble was going to happen. And right before it started, flashing blue lights appeared from the New York City Police Department. They came and and, and when they came, in those days, the police had some authority. And so when they came, members of both gangs, they scattered like street mice, except for Robinson. And Robinson said, I, I just froze. I stood there. He said, it wasn't that I was so much a, 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 a tough kid. I was, more, I was more scared than anything else. But I just, I just froze. I just stood there. All of a sudden, he said, uh, New York City police officer grabbed me by the nap of the neck and spun me around. He said if he, was, if he wasn't 6'5", he was nothing. At least 6'5". Couldn't fit through a normal-sized door. He was a massive man. That police officer began to frisk young Robinson. He felt something in his jacket. Officer reached in and pulled out the ice pick. Son... What are you going to do with this, he asked. And Robinson always had a quick wit. So he simply looked at the New York police officer and said, I, I thought I would break some ice, sir. And Robinson said, I'll never forget what happened next. That police officer spun me around. And the next thing I felt was his size 13 shoe against my backside. He kicked me halfway across the street. And he said, boy, go home and think about what you're doing. Robinson said, I did go home. I had been told there was a God. I didn't really know if he was real or not. He said, but that night, I began to think about what was the end result of being in a gang. And he said, so uh, I guess I prayed. And I said, God, if you're real, and if you can use a boy like me, I'm yours. And Robinson said, that was it. From that moment on, he said, I, I'm, I'm going to choose to live my life for my God. The rest is history. If you know anything about Haddon Robinson, you know that he was a fantastic preacher. Countless sermons were preached by him. He gave his life to the seminary. 
And he trained countless preachers to rightly divide the word of truth. His influence upon preachers is astounding. I don't know how many he directly taught and influenced. I don't know how many indirectly he taught and influenced because the book that he wrote on preaching is called Biblical Preaching. It is the gold standard of biblical textbooks on how to preach. Most seminaries, uh, most evangelical seminaries, use his book in homiletics, which is their preaching class, to teach uh, men how to preach the gospel. It's astounding. The number of people he's influenced. And he would trace it back to that fateful night when that size 13 boot of that New York police officer kicked him in the backside halfway across the street and set him back on the right path. I wonder, can you look back over your life and can you, can you feel any 13 size Feet kicking your backside? Can you see the hand of God in the hand of pagan sailors? Can, can, you, can you see how God is orchestrating something even through the New York Police Department? Can you see how God can use anything and everything at his disposal to capture your attention and to send you back on the right path? This is a story of Jonah. God rescued Jonah in the nick of time. I don't know how much time elapsed, but I know that God showed up in the nick of time. God may not show up on your time, but he'll always show up on the nick of time. He'll always show up at just that right moment for him to rescue you and put you back on the right path. Jonah prayed in spite of guilty distress. Jonah prayed in spite of gruesome circumstances. Third, Jonah prayed the glorious scriptures of God. Jonah says, I remembered you. And my prayers rose to your holy temple. It was Warren Wearsby who said that uh, this prayer of Jonah consists of at least 30 psalms. Now, i got to be honest, I didn't check Warren Wearsby on that. I mean, I didn't walk through all those 30 psalms and see the portions and the fragments and the statements that are from this prayer that are connected to that particular psalm. You may sit there and think to yourself, there's no way that those 10 verses have, are connected to 30 psalms. Well, Warren Wearsby did his homework. Okay, let's say he's off by a couple. That's still a lot, isn't it? The point is still clear that as Jonah was sinking down, he was grabbing for scraps of Scripture. That as he was floundering in the sea of his own debacle, that he was grabbing for that Scripture that he had committed to memory, that Scripture that he had been taught as a child, that Scripture that his father had recited over him. He just grabbed that Scripture. And I wonder this morning, do you know the power of a scrap of Scripture that will sustain you in the dark night of your soul? Do you know the power of God's Word? You may not know the exact book or chapter or verse, but you just know the power of that statement, the power of that phrase. It is the very Word of God, and God's Word will sustain you even in the darkest moment, even when you feel as if your life is ebbing away, that God will honor His Word, and you pray the glorious Scriptures of God. Is there anybody who understands the sustaining power of a scrap of Scripture? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. For my God is my rock and my salvation. God is my light. Whom shall I fear? God will be with me even as I pass through the waters. Salvation belongs to my Lord. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. My God is able to do immeasurably more you can ever ask, think, or imagine. I wonder this morning, is there anybody who knows the power of the sustaining power of a scrap of Scripture? You find yourself in the dark night of your soul. You find yourself between a rock and a hard place. You find yourself, and the only way you're going to get out of this mess is for God to deliver you from this mess. And you just simply pray the glorious scriptures of God. Fourth, Jonah prayed because of grace and in need of grace. You come to verse 8 and Jonah says, those who cling to worthless idols, they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with thanksgiving, will make a sacrifice to you. What I have promised, what I have vowed, I'll make good. For salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah, he's really having an aha moment. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What idols did Jonah cling? I think that he was clinging to the idols of patriotism and racism and pride. Remember, an idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing. An idol is anything that takes your attention or your affection away from God Almighty. That's an idol. A lot of idols in and of themselves, they're not bad things. They're, they're good things. But when we promote those idols and elevate those idols to the place of God, that's when we begin to idolize them. There's nothing wrong with being proud of the nation from which you come. But when your patriotism is greater than your passion for the Lord, that's dangerous. When you think that somehow you're superior because of the nation in which you were born versus the nation and the people of other nations, that's dangerous. Nothing wrong with celebrating your race. Your race is unique. Your race needs to be celebrated. But when everything is seen through the prism of the pigmentation of skin, that's dangerous. When somehow, someway, one race is elevated over other races simply because of the color of the skin, that is dangerous. Celebrate your race, but don't idolize it. Pride is good. You need to have self-pride. But when your pride swells so much that you tell God where you're going to go and where you're not going to go for him. And what you're going to do and what you're not going to do for him. That is dangerous. Jonah says these are worthless idols. 
And I was clinging to them. And I forfeited the grace that could be mine. Because grace can only come through God. Grace can only come through his gospel. So Jonah says, I will make good on what I have promised. When you called me, I promised to preach for you. When you saved me, I promised I would be indebted to you. When you woke up in, in my spirit the need for your salvation, oh God, I declared I am yours. I am your property. I'll do what you want me to do. I know that salvation comes from the Lord. And if you tell me to go preach to anybody, I'll go preach to them. Because the only hope they have in salvation is you. And they've got to hear it. So Lord, if you take me and have me speak to my own people, that's great. If you take me and send me to speak to Ninevites, I'll even speak to those scallywags because salvation can only come from you so God I'll do it and God must have said swell I'm glad Jonah said now God um, you got me in here you got to get me out of here and God says you're right I do have to get you out of there and Jonah because I'm so gracious and compassionate I'm gonna let you in on this negotiation uh, Jonah, how do you want me to get you out of there? Because the way I see it, there are only two exit routes. So Jonah, we can go north. Or Jonah, you can go south. Which one do you want it to be? And Jonah said, Lord, I really don't want to go south because I've seen what this fish has been eating. And it's foul and it stinks. So God, I'll go north. And God commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. The very next word of the sacred text. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Can we say a hearty amen? Thank you, Jesus. Aren't you glad that God gives you second chances? The word of God came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Preach the message that I give to you. And Jonah obeyed. Ironically, what God told Jonah to do the second time is the same thing God told Jonah to do the first time. God doesn't change, but he does change us. So Jonah obeyed. He went and he preached, repent, or within 40 days, God will destroy the city of Nineveh. And man, I'm telling you, revival broke loose. It's not a great sermon. It's not very long. It's just simply a few words, repent. Or you're gonna die. Repent, or Nineveh will be destroyed. You gotta do it, and you got oh about 40 days to do it. And people repented from the White House to the outhouse, from the king to the peasant, even the cattle were draped in sackcloth and ashes. Oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a revival that would sweep across our land from the White House to the outhouse? Wouldn't it be great if it swept up into the church house? Wouldn't it be great if revival swept across our land so that we as people would respond to our God in weeping and sackcloth and ashes and say, God, please relent from sending calamity upon us. We're sorry because of our sin. Friends, revival took place in Nineveh. And when revival took place, in chapter 4, Jonah goes outside the city gate and he sits and sulks. You expect for the preaching prophet to become a praising prophet, but instead he becomes a pouting prophet. 
God, I knew you would do this. I, I knew it when I, when I was there um, in, 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 in my home. And even as I was going to Joppa, I knew, I knew that if, that if I go to Nineveh and if I preach your gospel, that some of those terrible people will respond in faith and you'll accept them with your salvation because you are so gracious and so compassionate and so slow to anger and abounding in love and blah, 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 blah. I knew you would do this, God. It's just who you are. And I knew that you would send revival, that they would repent and you would relent from sin and calamity. This is exactly why I didn't want to come. God, just kill me now. And God says, you have no right to ask that. Did you give yourself life? You don't have the right to take your life. So the next day, God calls the plant to grow. It had large leaves that shaded the bald head of the prophet. That made Jonah glad. The next day, God provided a worm that ate that plant, took away the leaves over the bald head of the prophet, and that made Jonah mad. And Jonah said, God, just take my life. And God says, Jonah, the city of Nineveh has 120,000 people that don't know their left hand from their right hand. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? The reference to 120,000 people, that could be the population That'd be a decent-sized city in that day. It could be the number of children. They don't know their right hand from their left. Once again, to speak about the enormous population, because if that's the number of children, then think about the number of people that live in and around Nineveh. But regardless, God ends the book of Jonah with a question. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? Ironically, it's only the second book in all the Bible that ends with a question. The other book is Lamentation. And then here in Jonah, shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? Shouldn't I be concerned about people? And Jonah would have said, yes, I want you to be concerned about me. I want you to be concerned about my people. But God says, no, shouldn't I be concerned about all people? Because all people are made in the image of God, the very Imago Dei. What God is trying to communicate to Jonah is, Jonah, I love your enemy as much as I love you. The extent I will go to deliver you, Jonah, is the same extent I'll go to deliver them. Because I'm a God of great compassion and great grace and great love. Jonah, I love you. And I love your enemies just as much as I love you. Friend, can you handle that statement? God loves you, and he loves the people you don't like as much as he loves you. God loves your enemies. God loves the people that you've been trained to hate. God loves the people that you have the prejudice bent toward. God loves people. Shouldn't I be concerned about them? And the answer is yes. The interesting thing is that we don't know how Jonah answered the question. Did he just stay there and sulk or did he go into the city and celebrate with his newfound brothers and sisters in Christ? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know. It's at this moment that the biblical author invites you into the story. How do you respond? 
when God shows grace to people that you don't like, the same grace that he shows to you, how do you respond? When God favors your enemy, when God blesses the person who hurt you, how do you respond? People have asked the question, did did Jonah really live? And the answer is, yeah, he did. There's Old Testament evidence, there's New Testament evidence. Of course, in the Old Testament, there's the book of Jonah. But then in a place like 2 Kings chapter 14, Jeroboam redefines the lines and the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai. In the New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, this generation will not be given any sign other than the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will rise up, Jesus says, and speak judgment against this generation. Because this generation has one greater than Jonah here. Of course, Jesus is speaking of himself. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of God. Jesus is a son of God. Jonah was racist. Jesus is righteous. Jonah sat outside the city and sulked. Jesus hung outside the city and saved. Jonah was fickle. Jesus faithful. Jonah died. Jesus raised from the dead. We have one greater than Jonah. His name is Jesus. But here's my last question. Today, who looks more like you? Jonah or Jesus? And oh, how I want to say Jesus. I want to say that I look like Jesus. But the reality is I look like Jonah far too often. I go my own separate way. I do my own thing. I tell God where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do and who I'm going to talk to, who I'm not going to talk to. I cling to worthless idols and forfeit the grace that could be mine. I'm fickle just like Jonah. For sometimes I'm faithful unto him and he gets me to a spot of obedience only for me to discover that his favor is resting upon my enemy and then I sulk and I pout. Oh, far too many times I look like Jonah. What's remarkable is that in this story, it seems that everything is obedient to God except Jonah. The fish is obedient. The Ninevites are obedient. The plant, the worm, the cattle, everything seems to be obedient. The pagan sailors, they're obedient. Everything's obedient to God except Jonah. In your life, how obedient to God are you? If you find yourself looking like Jonah this morning, I want you to pray in spite of guilty distress. I want you to pray in spite of gruesome circumstances. I want you to pray the glorious scriptures of God. I want you to pray because of grace and in need of grace. Because there's one who's been given to us who's greater than Jonah. So my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us be Jesus' people, not Jonah clones. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll be honored and glorified. Lord, some of us just may need to come and pray 
Father, help us to cast all of our cares upon you. Father, some of us just really, we need to look more like Jesus than Jonah. So by your grace, will you please come and cleanse us. Use whatever you have at your disposal to help us to be on fire for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.